When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast, giving you, we hope, a flavourful sample of all our coverage from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu, a potential cure for goat plague, why Dumbo is one of the most sought-after areas of Manhattan, and how much people really know the animals they love. But first, coping with catastrophe was our cover line this week. Venezuela is struggling through an ongoing economic crisis and being driven towards chaos by its tenacious socialist regime. Economic sanctions could help the situation, but they must be targeted at officials, not the country, our cover leader argued. Venezuela claims to have more oil than Saudi Arabia, yet its citizens are hungry. An astonishing 93% of them say they cannot afford the food they need and three-quarters have lost weight in the past year. The socialist regime that caused this preventable tragedy claims to support the poor. Yet its officials have embezzled billions, making Venezuela the most corrupt country in Latin America, as well as the most ineptly governed. It is a textbook example of why democracy matters. People with bad governments should be able to throw the bums out. But with an increasingly undemocratic regime at the helm of this sinking ship, others are waking up to a growing regional threat. On July 26, the Trump administration announced individual sanctions on a further 13 Venezuelan officials involved in the Constituent Assembly or suspected of corruption or abusing human rights. Those who uphold the system should pay the price of sanctions, we argued. This effort could be intensified by pressing banks to disclose embarrassing information about officials who have stashed stolen public funds abroad. The European Union and Latin America should join this effort. You can read more about Venezuela's situation and how best to deal with it in this week's issue, which also includes a briefing on that beleaguered country. On now to the Middle East and Africa section, where we reported on the potential eradication of a less ideologically driven threat. Goat plague is rife across Africa, and it decimates the herds with which it comes into contact. But as an article reported, a new cure could stop the goats bleating, or rather allow it to continue. Rinderpest has plagued Africa and other parts of the world ever since cattle were domesticated. In the 1980s, an outbreak originating in Sudan killed millions of bovines across the continent. So it's good news that this disease was completely eradicated in 2011. It is exciting, therefore, that a team of scientists at a research institute in Kenya think peste des petits ruminants, or goat plague, could be eradicated too, thanks to their new vaccine. The disease kills up to 70% of the herds of sheep or goats it infects, animals vital to the survival of many of Africa's poorest people. But rather like the goat milk it's intended to protect, it goes off in the heat pretty quickly. Vaccinators have to set up cold chains, transporting it to its destination in cans of liquid nitrogen between refrigeration units. 
This is cumbersome enough in easy-to-reach places and almost impossible in more remote ones, where roads and electricity are scarce. The new freeze-drying process creates a thermostable version of the vaccine which doesn't deteriorate in hot climates. So, as researchers try to stamp out that pernicious plague over in our United States section, it's place names that are being squashed by local residents. An article explored the constant rebranding of New York City's districts and found out why some names just won't stick. Malcolm X, who called Harlem 7th Heaven, preached on the corner of 116th Street. Stretching further back, in the 1920s and 1930s, the Harlem Renaissance gave rise to an outpouring of literature, art and music. Harlemites are proud of this history and proportionately upset that estate agents are trying to rebrand the southern part and call it Sohar. Such regional rebranding isn't new. Pigtown in central Brooklyn is now called Wingate. Gas House District is now Stuyvesant Town. Yellow Hook became Bay Ridge after a yellow fever outbreak. Both sensible transitions. Neighbourhoods can be flexible too. Some have disappeared. Shapes change. In Brooklyn, Park Slope keeps getting bigger and Flatbush keeps getting smaller. Chinatown has been taking over Little Italy. There's got to be some sort of parallel there, I'm sure. Anyway, many districts are handy geographical amalgamations. Soho, so-called because it is south of Houston Street, was better known until the 1960s as Hell's Hundred Acres. It was the first to use an acronym and has spawned imitators. Tribeca, triangle below Canal Street, emerged in the 1970s. Despite, or because of its silly name, Dumbo, down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass, is one of the most sought-after areas in the city. And it was plain old North Brooklyn last time I passed through. Some ideas just don't fly, though. Others, like Sobro, South Bronx, Bococa, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill and Borham Hill, which is in fact flat, and Rambo, right after the Manhattan Bridge overpass, mercifully did not stick. At a certain point, they got too silly, says Philip Kazinitz, a sociologist at City University of New York. They also didn't work, he says, because their residents objected. On now to some conscientious objection within the Bitcoin community. A rift has been building up between two sides of what you could call a small civil war. In our Money Talks podcast this week, our technology editor Ludwig Siegler explained what's behind the divergence surrounding the digital currency. Yes, so the creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, he set certain limits to the system. But those numbers meant that the system can only process seven transactions per second, which is not a lot compared to, let's say, Visa or MasterCard, which can do several thousands per second if they need to. And it's actually the technical solution is pretty straightforward. You just have to tweak certain parameters to increase the capacity. But still, there's a big fight, mainly because this simple question has triggered conflict over what Bitcoin is supposed to be. Should it be more like gold or cash? Also, who, who has a say? I mean, this system was created to be leaderless. Now there's a fight over who actually gets to determine or, or influence the evolution of the system. Some Bitcoiners are more equal than others, and so on. If Bitcoin still leaves you scratching your head a bit, something discussed in our science and technology show Babbage might give your neurons a boost. Our correspondent Benjamin Sutherland explained how military researchers are using technology to extract a bit more juice out of the human brain. 
try and stimulate the brain using small doses of direct current, alternating current, ultrasound, or even magnetic stimulation to increase the brain's performance, typically known generically as uh, brain stimulation. Small doses of electricity. The military has also been very interested in this, but there have also been civilian researchers working on it with hopes for improving workplace efficiency. A wise investment then to tell our bosses about. Even with that boost to our brains, it could still be tricky to work out just how much we know the animals we share the planet with. We grappled with that in our books and art section this week, which reviewed two works on animal writing. It seems that what we write about our fellow fauna might reveal what we really think about ourselves. Do people really know the animals they love? The question gnaws at a pair of memoirs published this month. Big Pig, Little Pig, Jacqueline Yallop's account of raising two porkers in rural France, and As Kingfishers Catch Fire, a meditation by Alex Preston on a lifelong obsession with birds. For Miss Yallop's part, her love of animals arose from raising hogs in the countryside. But sadly, that also meant killing them for their meat. Tending to the pigs, two Gascon-Noir boars that eventually bulk up to 170 kilograms is like an executioner falling for someone on death row. Their names are simply Big Pig and Little Pig to avoid too much attachment, but Miss Yallop soon recognises their distinct personalities. Big Pig is loyal, sensible and stately, whereas Little Pig is scatty, selfish and lazy. Oh, I'm so on Little Pig's side on that one. Mr Preston's book, meanwhile, is both personal memoir and homage to the bird. His fascination with birds began at the age of seven upon seeing a peregrine swoop like the head of a shovel flung from the heavens. The title itself comes from a sonnet by Gerard Manley Hopkins, a Victorian poet of God in Nature, which asserts that each created thing has an individual self, that, being indoors, each one dwells. Mr Preston shows that the sharpest bird-watchers capture that individual spirit, yet he admits that birds resist anthropomorphism, as they're both unpredictable and nomadic. Among the odes to their allure is a fear of the ultimate meaninglessness of the birds and how little they care about the men who pin their hopes on mere song. These books are as much about human nature as animal spirits. Either way, we implore you to tweet about our podcast. Yes, sorry, sorry. And it's come to an end. If you've any thoughts about any of our shows, as always, email them, send them by pigeon, or you could always do radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.